I'm going to read a passage of scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And when I read it, I don't want you to get mad at me. I'm just reading it. Wait until I've actually explained it before you let yourself get too emotional. Okay? Shake on it. You're not going to get mad at me for reading what this passage of the Bible says. We agreed? Thank you. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I'm reading from the New International Version. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Don't throw any shoes. Gloria. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you struggled with that one today, to the thanks be to God part. This is the single most used passage in your New Testament to keep women from ministry roles in church life. Historically, this has been the passage that has taught the church to distrust women because they are more easily deceived and therefore they should never have a teaching role. This has been a dominantly used passage, a dominantly used chunk of scripture to put women subservient to men in home life, church life, corporate life, business life, public life, all of life. I want to first come at it and say, instead of just reading it in English, instead of just cutting it and pasting it from its 2,000 years removed from us, it's ancient, and from its foreign context, instead of just cutting it and pasting it with no context at all, into our situation and thinking that it's just going to be immediately understandable and applicable as it's written, that is a profoundly irresponsible method of Bible interpretation. The responsible method of Bible interpretation says context is everything. When you take someone's words out of context and you place them in a different context, You will be accurately quoting them, but you will be misunderstanding and misusing their meanings. So the first context I want to use to frame this passage is that it was written to Timothy, who was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. We kind of know this, but let's talk about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus had about 100,000 people in it. It was a major commerce center. It was situated you know, beside a waterway, so there was much capacity for shipping. It was, it was a very important culturally uh, influential city, and it housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple to Artemis, which was uh, you know, four times bigger than the Parthenon, and it housed a huge bank, and it was a refuge for people who were seeking, uh, you know, refugees who were t- seeking status and protection. And Artemis is the goddess, 
is the goddess who killed some, I forget who, mighty masculine god and became this female deity that was the, the patron deity. Hey, you're raising your hands too. The, the patron de- de- deity for women who were in the dangerous pains of childbirth. It was well known, and I didn't get this from liberal scholarship, I got this from secular scholarship. It was well known that Artemis was, was the one you would call on when you were... because. Childbirth is dangerous now. And in the ancient world, the mortality rates for babies was much higher, but also for mothers was much higher. Childbirth is dangerous. So they would call on Artemis to save them through the, out of the pain of childbirth regularly. In fact, when the temple to Artemis burned down, it was on the eve of the birth of Alexander the Great. And everyone said the reason that her temple burned down was because she was there delivering Alexander into the world and she wasn't home to protect her temple. Now, you've got to understand the pull, the pull, the draw of a feminine goddess who is a warrior goddess and a fertility goddess, and yet she's single and has no man attached to her. You've got to understand the draw of this powerful goddess. When, it, when, her, when she became Romanized, they called her Diana. Anybody seen Wonder Woman? Yeah, baby, come on now. If you haven't seen Wonder Woman, please watch it. So good. That's one of the few movies lately that my wife and I looked at each other and said, we need to buy this so that we can stream it anytime. Especially when she's a little girl and she's watching her aunt, you know, and she's like up there. And I was like, yeah. And I looked over at Layla and Layla was like, I said, you like this, don't you? And she goes, yes. (laughs) The little warriors arise. But uh, Diana, Artemis became, uh, in a world world that was so male-dominated, male-oppressive, male, uh, uh, women were property, women were possessions, they were objectified, raped, molested, told what to do. In this world in which women were vulnerable and dangerous unless they were attached to a man, can you see the pull of Artemis? Artemis, who is a woman who killed the evil, and and, and to be a part of her cult, typically you were unmarried. You were typically single. And the idea, and if you were a man and you committed yourself deeply to Artemis, you would castrate yourself as a sign of your deep contrition over the wickedness of being a man. No thanks, said, who said that? (laughs) So this is a feminist pagan cult that has a big draw in the city of Ephesus. And she's, again... The goddess you call on in the pain and danger of your childbirth. Are you finding any connections with our passage yet? You'll notice when we, so let's start with, that's, the, that's the sort of the context of the city of Ephesus. I, I could also let you know that in the ancient world, there were a lot, there were a lot of women who were not educated. Just throwing that out there. So first, the first context I want to use to frame this passage is the city in which Timothy is exercising his pastoral leadership. And then you can just start with the, te- the text itself. First Timothy begins by Paul saying, now I left you in Ephesus in order to command certain people to stop teaching myths and genealogies that lead to speculations rather than faith relationship with God. So the whole point of Paul leaving Timothy in Ephesus is because Paul says there are active false teachings at Ephesus that you need to stop. Maybe that is somehow connected. 
And then I want to look at, the, look at the specific Greek words used in this passage. He starts by saying women should be silent. And the word that's rendered silent does not actually mean do not make a sound. It actually means do not be uproarious and stir up factions. Isn't that interesting? Specific word choices matter, don't they? The next word. Notice how he says it's a woman. If you read in context, the broader context, Paul, in the midst of this chapter two, he has just finished saying, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, etc., etc. And then he says, I want women everywhere to do this. And now when he comes to verse 11, he switches it from the plural to the singular. Is that significant? I'm asking questions here. I'm not trying to like slam dunk something. This word that's rendered, I do not permit, it doesn't mean I will never permit. It doesn't mean I never permit. Do you know what it means? It means I am not currently permitting. Greek is way more specific than English. I am not currently permitting. Let's keep going looking at the Greek. This word for authority is only used one time in your New Testament. It's what they call a hypax legomenon, which means it's only used one time. That's a big fancy way of saying it's only used one time in the Bible. And the best, most recent, most current scholarship on authentain, the word for authority, means to violently usurp authority. Well, that is, is that significant? It doesn't mean to have or hold authority. It means to violently usurp authority. Is that pertinent information in how we interpret this? In other words, it appears to me, this is to me, to Tim, it appears to me that what Paul is contradicting is not women speaking in public, but a kind of rebellious interruption and undermining of the order of the house. Furthermore, there's specific content Paul is contradicting. Like if I come into the house and I say, stop listening to loud music, all of you would assume what's happening. If I just come in and I say, turn the music down, like 100% of you would assume, 100% of you would assume what? Somebody is listening to loud music. People have read this passage over the years like there's nothing going on at Ephesus. And that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, people are just calmly sitting in pews and then all of a sudden Paul gets up and starts screaming that women are easily deceived and sinful. But if you understand the city of Ephesus and the feminist paganism that ladies in Ephesus would have been coming out of, It seems that he is correcting a wrong theology, a feminist theology that says women are pure and the source of all life and men are the parasites who are evil. I'm not going to repeat some of the comments that are being made. (laughs) It seems that he is correcting an ultra, what I would call an ultra-feminist perspective And how many of you, in in the midst of an argument with someone, will overstate your case? 
most of the prophets in the Old Testament, let's say, let's take, let's say we based our whole theology on the book of Nahum. Nahum the prophet, which basically says the furious wrath of the Lord, you know, bound, like screams forth from Zion and burns up all of his enemies. The wrath of the Lord is great. It is very great. And like it's a theology, if you base all your theology on the book of Nahum, you're going to be like, God is really, really mad. That's pretty much all we can say about him. He's super mad all the time. But if you understand that the prophets always bring an imbalanced message in order to correct an imbalanced circumstance to bring it back to balance, then you will be reading correctly. My deeply held conviction is that Paul, in arguing the specific content of Eve being deceived first, or Adam being created first and then Eve being deceived first, is not trying to to espouse a sexist, men are awesome, women are totally untrustworthy theology, but rather he is saying nah-uh to the feminism at work in the city of Ephesus. These are my views. I'm sharing my views. In fact, let's Let's broaden the culture, or broaden the context from, from this little book to more, more New Testament. If Paul were trying to assert that women are, it's never appropriate for women to speak publicly, why would he work so hard in other situations to say women should have a sign of authority on their head, 1 Corinthians 11, in order that they can pray and prophesy in public? And if we know anything from Paul's lists of gifts, it's that prophecy is a higher priority gift than teaching. They can prophesy, they can't teach. And so people in our conference, like John Showalter, I saw him say online that the way he takes this passage is to mean that women should not teach authoritatively over men. That's his interpretation. That's, I, Tammy doesn't feel the same way, doesn't think the same way. And I love John Showalter. That was not intended to be... I'm trying to accurately present his perspective. I'm not trying to skewer him. And the reason I'm saying that is to say that our denomination has had a high view of women in ministry and has not taken this passage to mean women shouldn't be trusted because they're sinful, but has tried to figure out how the male-female headship, uh, Christ church, headship submission, how that complementarity and the differentiation works with, and give dignity to ladies. That's the, the, the conference we're in is trying to figure, out, figure that out right now. But what I'm trying to argue is, I think if we work really hard to dig down into the context of this passage, some of the assumptions that we have been utilizing might be wrong. So, else, so if you try to take this passage to mean that Paul is saying women can't be trusted and should never teach a man then you end up squishing all these other New Testament passages that allow women to function in all sorts of deeply significant ways. I could, I could explain some of that. Uh, like Paul worked with many intelligent, capable women. He greatly respected Priscilla and Aquila. He named Junia as an apostle. He named Phoebe's, uh, Chloe's household. There's all sorts of stuff going on in, in, in just Paul's work, not even to mention Jesus who had female disciples who supported him financially and they were the first to see him post-resurrection and Mary's the one, first one preaching the gospel to the apostles. There's all sorts of stuff going on in your Bible that would seem to contradict this passage if it is interpreted as women are more sinful than men and should therefore shut up. 
Furthermore, if, if women are more easily deceived and so they can only teach women, that would make no sense because now the most easily deceived people are teaching the most easily deceived people. And it's also been said, well, they can at least teach children. And I'm like, who are even more easily deceived? If you really take the traditional interpretation of this passage, which I disagree with, I like Paul, by the way. I like Paul. I don't think he's sexist. But I think the traditional interpretation is very sexist. And it's held by people who don't think they are sexist. They just have sexist beliefs that lead to sexist actions. And if deeply held, lead to sexist attitudes. And here's what I mean. The feeling that men are less easily deceived and wiser will lead you to look down on women. It will. It does. And the way that people get away from it is they don't apply it with consistency. There's enough egalitarianism somewhere down in their gut to say, well, we can't really do this fully. So, for example, this week I was reading the ESV study Bible that said right on this passage, men are always in charge, women are always under them. This like says this right explicitly right in their, in their study, mar- study notes. Men are always in charge. Women are always under them. Shut up, women. It didn't say shut up. It just said it in a nicer way, but it's the same meaning. And then underneath that it says, now this only applies to the church. In business, women can be in charge. And in government, they can be in charge. But in church, they can't. And I thought, why? Why? What is in your gut that you're pushing back against the complete, consistent application of your so-called principles? something to think about so the theological content seems to be a correction of Genesis 2 and 3 all messed up specifically contradicting the heretical pagan sort of beliefs that would be at work in Ephesus namely that Eve was enlightened by the serpent and freed both Adam and Eve through gaining secret knowledge through the serpent which as we know later on the apostle John ends up correcting bless you guys we all know that the apostle John in his letters, is arguing against what we call early forms of Gnosticism. He's saying, look, Jesus did come in the flesh. Flesh is not evil. Marriage is not evil. And so on and so forth. The goddess who killed the evil male god will deliver through the dangers of childbirth. Which part? That is, that is one of the convictions he's contradicting. The goddess... The goddess who killed the evil male, male god, he, she will deliver us through, to the, through and out of the pain of childbirth. And in this passage it says, no, no, she'll be saved out of childbirth by God. Keep faith. Keep walking. You'll be saved. I assume that this is a pastoral advice that is in fact a response to Timothy's questions. Timothy would have filled Paul in with the details of, here's what I'm going through, what should I do? And this, this is, in other words, this is coming from somewhere. Um, I know we're, it's like people are leaving this afternoon. Bless you guys, love you guys. Thank you so much for what you do. You're awesome. They're doing such a great job with the junior youth. Here's some objections. Paul's argument, Tim, you're wrong because his argument is not rooted in in a situational thing, but rather he states that it is because of creation order and Eve's deception. And if if it's not a situational thing, then it applies everywhere directly. It can be cut and paste from Ephesus to every situation. My response to that is, well, Paul sometimes argues this way. He argues in what sounds like absolute terms. 
either against something or for something. Do you remember the time he said anyone who lets themselves be circumcised will be cut off from Christ? You remember that? Do you remember the other time when he had Timothy circumcised so that he might better reach Jews? Remember that time when he said all food is clean, you can eat it, God made it, it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer, you can go ahead and eat it, all food is clean? Remember that, remember that time? Sounds pretty absolute, doesn't it? Sounds pretty timeless. Remember that other time when he said, I'm not going to eat meat if it causes you to stumble? Remember that? He does this all the time. Paul is always responding differently to a circumstance out of his core values. Not out of his stated reasons that he gives. Out of his core values that are driving him. And his core value is always the gospel. It's always the gospel. His core value is always the gospel. It's always the gospel. And so in a city like Ephesus where you have an uneducated female group that is teaching false doctrine, the correct response to preserve the gospel is to tell them to hush and learn. They're undermining the healthy marriage model. Hush and learn. They're undermining the sound doctrine. Hush and learn. But in a situation where Priscilla and Aquila show up and Apollos doesn't yet understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Priscilla, Aquila, you rock, dude, but you don't have the teaching gift. Priscilla does. Priscilla, can you instruct Apollos? Of course, in the book of Acts reveals that, he, that she did. She's always named first. What's the significance of that, guys? It means that the core value driving Paul is not male-female roles. The core value driving Paul is the gospel. Is it possible, guys? Is it possible that in this situation... Let me, I'll, you know what? I'm just going to back up. The broader context of the New Testament, I've kind of already said that. Let me just summarize my view. This restriction on women in a teaching role is limited and local... And the passage has applications that are timeless and eternal and for everywhere. For example, it would always be inappropriate for a woman or anyone to take over the services and undermine the duly established leadership and teach false doctrines that come from paganism. Can I get a duh? The second time I asked Tammy to preach, I actually had asked Butch to teach, and I said, that was awesome. What you shared in devotional thought at elder meeting was fantastic. Can you preach that? And he said, well, I don't want to because it was actually just something I heard Tammy say in a sermon. I want her to preach it. And I was like, okay. So I said, Tammy, can you preach? And she said, I'm not sure I want to. She had only preached one time, I think, at that point in our church. She said, I'm not sure I want to, Tim, because this passage is in the Bible. And even though I don't agree that it means that I can never teach, people sitting here do think that. And I don't think they're going to be able to receive from me as long as their consciences are bound by this passage, with, by their understanding of this passage. So I'm not comfortable with this. And I said, well, based on my reading of this passage, the, the principles that apply from this passage that are timeless and eternal and apply everywhere, are you in line with your husband? Or are you undermining him? She said, I'm absolutely in line with my husband. Butch is the one who wants me to preach this. I said, are you in line with church leadership, with duly established church leadership? She said, of course. Well, actually, I don't know if you said it all this way. We're just on Facebook Messenger. Are you in line with church leadership? Absolutely. All right, well, then let's look at the content that you're teaching. Does it undermine the gospel or is it the pure and sound gospel that you're preaching? Well, it's the pure and sound gospel or I wouldn't have asked you to do it. Well, then I said, then you're faithfully applying the values that are driving Paul that are expressed in 1 Timothy chapter 2. My conscience is absolutely clear. Then she's been sort of begging me to teach this stuff so that other people will see what I see. 
More yeah buts. Here's another yeah but. Let me just put this out there. The Bible's relationship to women is always progressive relative to the surrounding culture. In the Old Testament, women are given much greater dignity, much more protection, much more rights. You know that divorce was allowed to protect women, right? Because once she's damaged goods and has been rejected, then she's just going to be, what, a prostitute or homeless? No. The certificate of divorce is there so that she can have the dignity and personhood to have some sort of a standing in an ancient society. So relative to the surrounding pagan culture, Hebrew Old Testament, which sounds so backwards and sexist to us today, was super liberal and progressive. Fast forward to the New Testament where Jesus has female disciples and Paul's telling husbands to lay your lives down for your wives because they're apparently worth your blood. The personhood and the dignity and the value in that passage, that's a feminist passage, guys, not in the anti-man sense, but in the, in the healthy sense of four women. This is so countercultural relative to the culture at the time. But again, because Paul's core value is not male-female relationships, but the gospel, the apostles take male-female roles as far as they possibly can without damaging the ability of the gospel to spread. How can I say this any stronger? I'm just about sure that a lot of the things you find in your New Testament would be stated a little differently if it were written today. Because the culture now can bear movement further in the direction the New Testament was pushing. So here's the pushback. In other words, there's a trajectory somewhere. To take the trajectory of the Bible's teaching on slavery to its full, to take it where it wanted to go, but couldn't get there while it was in the times in which it was written, is the abolition of the, doc- of the, of the whole institution itself. That's the trajectory where the Bible wanted to go. They just didn't have time to get there in the time that they lived and wrote. God always speaks in baby talk to babies. But he's headed somewhere. Relative to women, same thing. It's always pushing toward what I would consider the dignity and value and equality of males and females. But it can't get there in the times in which it came without damaging the gospel. Here's the pushback. Yeah, but... If we start doing that, if we start allowing women to preach and teach, then we'll soon be ordaining homosexual people as pastors as well. Do you understand that pushback? I'm almost done. I'm flying here. We're like fast. I'm going to read you something from a gentleman named John Jefferson Davis. I'm quoting, the response to this concern that if we, if we take this stance toward women, then, then we will be soon just no longer even having any biblical grounds to, to uh, say that other forms of, you hear what I mean. The response to this concern, however, is to observe that in the course of redemptive history and in the breadth of the biblical canon, there is uniformity in the biblical rejection of homosexual practices, while there is diversity in the types of public leadership roles played by women in both the Old and New Covenant communities. To repeat that, in the case of homosexual practices, there is one consistent position reflected through both testaments. The biblical assessment of homosexuality is uniformly negative. There are no historical or cultural contexts mentioned in Scripture in which homosexuality is portrayed in a positive light. In other words, it's consistently saying, no, this is not the design. No, this is not the design. Both all the way through the the whole Bible. 
Whereas with women, it's always pushing further. It's always pushing further. It's always making progress and keeps moving the standard forward. Same for slavery, by the way. In the case of women's leadership roles, there is a significant diversity within the Bible itself. In 1 Timothy 2.2, women's roles are restricted. It's here argued. I'm sorry, in the 1 Timothy passage. In light of local problems with women who were misled by false teachers and plausibly teaching men in a domineering fashion. Elsewhere in the New Testament and in the Bible itself, one can recall the prominent leadership roles exercised by women, like Deborah, the prophet, Huldah, the prophet, Miriam, the sister of Moses, the four daughters of Philip who were prophets, Phoebe, Romans 6, like, these are all you can biblical references for these. At different times in biblical history, God used these women, and there is no hint within the Bible itself that the activities of these women were viewed in a negative light. The diversity, the fact that women's authoritative leadership is sometimes prohibited and sometimes permitted, indicates that circumstantial factors are in play, not merely transcultural creational norms. Those are big words. It just basically means it's not built into the nature of how God wants it to be, that men are always up and women are always down. Local problems. Final thoughts. Do you understand I'm flying? You're going to have to like go back and re-listen and say, I didn't catch it. Even the most traditional believers in the way they read this passage and apply it, listen to me, even the most patriarchal believers, I want to come over here instead, even the most (laughs) traditional, patriarchal, so-called conservative, which I hate that word, right? So if I'm conserving what Paul actually meant, then I'm a liberal? Get a life, right? Get a friggin' life. Even the most conservative traditional interpretation of this passage doesn't apply it the way you might think. Again, the ESV study Bible says women, of course, can have leadership roles in business or government, just not in the church. And a pastor whom I like, who I profoundly disagree with on so many things, but I like him so much, John Piper, he says this. Here's how male headship works in family devotions. A husband who is less gifted with reading or words than his wife should express, this is, I'm not quoting, I'm summarizing. A husband who is less gifted with reading and words than his wife should express his spiritual leadership something like this. Gather the children, hush them, say a short prayer, and then invite your wife to teach them. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Even the most patriarchal conservative believer who thinks this passage teaches that women are not trustworthy. Even the most conservative guy says that the proper use of the male headship in the home is to create a platform for the woman to use her gifts for the benefit of all and the furtherance of the gospel. I'm not convinced that I've convinced you, but I'm at least sharing with you why I think what I think and how I operate. That is enough for today, and uh, we will continue with this little theme for a a little bit longer. Uh, Any pushback or questions, observations? Should I re-summarize a little bit? In Ephesus, you got, in Ephesus, you got 
a goddess cult that teaches that men are wicked, women are pure and wonderful. A context in which Paul's already told... Just, 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 just restrain it. Just restrain it, Gloria. A context where there's clearly already false teaching, and that's the whole reason Paul's left Timothy there in the first place. Is it possible, guys, that to turn that radio down doesn't mean Paul's never for playing music at volume? Something to think about. Love you. Go ahead and stand for a benediction. You have a point. Okay. May the Lord grant understanding to those of us and those of us who have ears to hear whatever it is you want us to hear, Father. Whatever it is. We want to hear. Let us hear your voice. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Go in peace.